Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Dr. Bill Telephone Education Series. Dr. Bill Tekeshita is the Chief of Optometric Services and Coordinator of the Children's Program for the Center for the Partially Sighted, as well as Consulting Director of Low Vision Training for Braille Institute. And tonight we're partnering to bring you this education series. And uh, our topic tonight will be uh, an overview of eye anatomy, how vision works with the brain. And uh, just one quick um, statement here. The Dr. Bill Telephone Education Series is an educational program focusing on pediatric eye conditions for parents, teachers, and other professionals working with young children with visual impairments. The topics presented should not be considered a medical or educational consultation, but information to help us better understand pediatric eye conditions. So we thank you very much tonight, Dr. Bill. Oh, thank you very much, Sue. And I want to thank all of you for spending your, your precious home evening hours here with us so that we could share more information about vision. And I hope also that this will be a discussion so that we could also learn from all of you. Now, this evening, we're talking about the anatomy and physiology of vision. And for many people, it doesn't sound as though this is a very exciting topic. I know that this is something that can be dry, but... If you are a parent or you are a doctor or you are a teacher or therapist who works with children with vision impairment, it's really very, very helpful to truly understand the anatomy and physiology of the visual system. And the reason that this is so important, and I use this every day when we're evaluating children, is the fact that based on what you hear from the family, the medical history, or any medical reports, you can often predict what types of visual weaknesses and visual strengths that a child will have based on what is the anatomy of the eye. So if we hear that a child has a disease that affects one particular tissue of the eye, we can already predict what problems that child may have and how we can help. And similarly, if we hear that a child has suffered from a medical condition, let's say the child has water in the brain, hydrocephalus, or the child has suffered from seizures, and we know what location of the brain the seizures are coming from, we could then predict what is going to be the functional weakness and strength of that child, and it gives us so much information on, on how to work with these kids. So the first thing that we're going to do is we're going to review the anatomy of the eye. And to make things as, as simple as possible, I'm going to describe this in a way that if some of your other coworkers and colleagues want to hear this at a later time, they can refer to this and go through the same different types of tasks as we understand the anatomy. Now, to begin with this, one thing that could be helpful is if you do listen to this in the future or you do have a hand mirror right now, you could look at your own eye and we'll review some of these different types of structures. So the first thing that you could do is get in front of a mirror or hold a hand mirror in front. And as you're looking at your eyes, let's begin at the upper portion where we have her, our eyebrow. Now, the eyebrow is a very, very important landmark for, for many different reasons. Uh, number one, we sometimes will be able to locate the eyebrow, and if we feel our eyebrow from the center towards the nose and we follow it along towards our ear, you could feel that there is a ledge, a hard bone structure that we could feel that is right directly underneath the skin or right underneath the eyebrow. And we might say, is there really a function of the eyebrow? What's the significance of the eyebrow? Well, one of the important benefits of having an eyebrow is that the eyebrow actually protects your skin from getting cut or breaking at that location. You see, wherever that there is hair on the body, it actually provides a strength or some resistance against abrasion. So many times if a person were to bend their head and they bump that ridge of bone, the eyebrow is going to prevent it from actually tearing and bleeding. So the eyebrows are very, very important. Number two, 
When you look at the eyebrow of the right side and the left side, you will notice that most people will have an area directly above the bridge of the nose where there is no eyebrow. However, when you do see a child who has an eyebrow that literally extends all the way across, so it looks as though there's one continuous eyebrow from left to right, that is often an indication that this child may have a genetic abnormality or some type of a syndrome. So if we do see what we call the unibrow, we then want to go ahead and look more carefully at this child. Other things that we could do as we're looking at the child with a unibrow, we may notice that the position of the eyebrow is lower and the forehead is actually very, very large. We could then look at the ears of these children and we may then also notice that their ears are displaced downward. So for these types of children, these are the children that should be referred to a pediatrician for genetic testing. And we see that many times the unibrow, a large forehead, and the ears that are displaced down can be indicative of different types of syndrome. One particular type of example of this may be Fragile X. And Fragile X syndrome is a genetic abnormality which is the leading cause of mental retardation in males. So as a result, when you do just look at the eyebrow, the forehead, the position of the ears, often you could identify some differences that might indicate a genetic syndrome. Next, as we then go closer towards the eyebrow, we next have the upper eyelid. And the upper eyelid is something that you could physically touch with your fingers. And the eyelid's main function is to open and close. Each time that the eyelids open and close, this is called a blink, it is going to actually wash tears over the front tissue of the eye, which is called the cornea. So each time that we blink, it's going to wash tears, and these tears are going to flush out any dust or debris. And this particular type of washing action is going to prevent the person from getting a headache or also getting severe sensitivity to the bright light, and it could also prevent severe eye pain. Now, the way that the upper eyelid is going to open and close is that it is controlled by a set of nerves that are in the brain stem. Now, the brain stem, as you might recall, is a structure. If we think of the brain, it kind of looks like a mushroom. It has a stalk, and then it has the outer cone. So in the human brain, the stalk is what we would call the brain stem. And within the brain stem, we have 12 pairs of cranial nerves. So there's a left and right cranial nerve number one, a left and right cranial nerve number two, left and right cranial nerve three, and all the way until we go to left and right cranial nerve number 12. Now, the cranial nerve three in the brainstem is what actually controls that ability to open the eyelid. So one of the things that you could do with very young children you could actually evaluate the function of cranial nerve 3 in a screening by watching, does this child fully open her, his or her eyes? If the upper eyelid does not fully open, that's a condition that is called ptosis, spelled P-T-O-S-I-S. And with ptosis, this may be because of an abnormal function of cranial nerve number 3. Another thing that you could do also, if you're suspecting that the eyelids are not opening fully, is very gently, you could pull the eyelids down with your fingers. And with babies, when you pull their eyelids down, they will then reflexively open their eyes. So you could feel if the eyelids are then trying to open and if the eyelids do or do not open. And based on the ability to open the eyelid, you could, again, confirm that type of ptosis. Now, why is it important to identify ptosis? 
well, there's many children who may have ptosis where the eyelids do not fully open. And if the upper eyelid doesn't open beyond the upper margin of the pupil, then that means that light information is not getting into the eyes, and this can result in the abnormal development of the visual centers of the brain. In other words, if the eyelids do not fully open, the visual cells of the brain do not develop. And as a result, many of these children will be legally blind in that eye because the brain cells did not get stimulated. If the brain cells do not get stimulated properly because of the drooping ptosis eyelid, this is called amblyopia exanopsia. Amblyopia, A-M-B-L-Y-O-P-I-A, and then the next word is E-X-A-N-O-P-S-I-A. So for these young children, we will refer them to an eyelid specialist, and they then may perform surgery to open the eyelids further. Other things that we may do is we may monitor this and see if it does improve with time. But in the interim, we're going to perform a visual stimulation program where we will open the eyelids fully by using a thick artificial tear and tape. And for about a half hour to an hour at different times of the day, we will stimulate the vision by using the iPad and other types of applications. Now, when we also then look at that upper eyelid, one of the things that we want to do is we want to also check, can the eyelid fully close? And we need the eyelids to fully close, for example, when we sleep, or if an object is rapidly approaching you, can the eyelids close and protect your eyes? Now, the closing function of the upper eyelid is controlled by cranial nerve 7. So I like to sort of think of that as the number 7 almost looks like there's a little hook on the end, and it could attach to the upper eyelid and close it. Whereas cranial nerve number 3, I think of Roman numeral 3, and I now have three vertical pillars that are holding the eyelids open. That's a very easy way to remember which cranial nerves will open the upper eyelid and close the upper eyelid. If a child or an adult does not fully close that eyelid, it can create some very serious problems because the eye will become dry. And when the eye becomes dry, the cornea, which is the frontmost transparent tissue of your eye, this is a tissue that you would apply your contact lens to. If it does not receive this type of lubrication, it will then turn white. And you may have seen some people or some children who have a white cornea. It might be because of a scar. It could be because of dryness because the upper eyelid doesn't close. It could be because of other types of eye diseases. So again, in the cases that the eyelid does not fully close, these children who do not fully close their eyelids at night, we will recommend the use of an ointment when they go to sleep. So we tell the parents, after the child falls asleep, put a little bit of this ointment in the child's eye, and it will keep the eye lubricated. In some other cases, if it's a bit more uh, aggressive, where we need to be more aggressive to get that eyelid to close during the daytime, the ophthalmologist may perform surgery, and one of the more common types of surgeries where they will insert a very small piece of a gold plate. And by using the gold plate, it will have weight that will help the eyelid to close. So in some kids, you may have heard that they have received surgery where a gold plate is put into the upper eyelid. The next thing I want you to do is as you're looking at your upper eyelid, you can then see that you have your upper set of eyelashes. Now, the eyelashes are typically going to be pigmented or they're going to be colored. If you look at the region of where the eyelash immediately comes out of the eyelid, 
that particular area should also be very, very clean. If you notice that there seems to be clumps of oil near the base of the eyelash, or there's dandruff flakes near that area, or if the area where the eyelashes are entering the upper eyelid, if that skin looks a little red, this is something that's called blepharitis. And that's spelled B-L-E-P-H-A-R-I-T-I-S. And this means that we have inflammation within that area. In the region where the eyelashes go into the upper and lower eyelid, there's a lot of different glands. And these glands, they secrete oil. And in some cases, the oil may get clogged. And this is why we get different types of infections. So these children who might always be blinking their eyes rapidly, rubbing their eyes, or you see these crusties every time that they wake up in the morning, they have this type of condition called blepharitis. And these are the kids who should be seen by their eye doctor. And in some cases, the eye doctor will prescribe a special type of uh, eye wash. And this type of eye wash, it's a medicated soap that you put on a washcloth and you clean the eyelid and the eyebrows before the child goes to sleep and when they wake up. In other cases, if it looks like it is infecting the eye, the white part of the eye will notice that it's red also. And in these cases, we will recommend a medication as well. So the upper eyelid plays a very, very important role. And again, cranial nerve number three opens the eyelid, cranial nerve seven closes it. And this is very important for that type of lubrication of the eye. Now we can look at the bottom, lower eyelid, and the lower eyelid is a little bit smaller structure, and we notice that the lower eyelid does not move as much, but it actually does move up and down also to lubricate the eyes as well. We do have eyelashes in the lower eyelid, and we have to also be aware of the blepharitis. Now, if you have your mirror, what I want you then to do is to partially pull down your lower eyelid. And if you then look towards the corner of the eye, where the upper and eye, lower eyelid sort of intersect, you'll notice that in your lower eyelid, there's actually a very small hole there. It's a hole that looks as though you got a sewing needle and you poked a hole in that lower eyelid. This is actually a drainage duct that takes the tears and it will then drain the tears from the eye into the nasal cavity. And so this is the reason why when we cry and we have a lot of tears, our nose runs because as we're crying, the tears are being dumped into the eye and then it's being drained through this little type of a duct. Now, in many children, that duct, it may be clogged, and you may not be able to see it with the naked eye, but we have special tests that we could perform. And one thing that we often do is we put a little bit of an orangish-yellow dye in the child's eye. And then what we do is we look to see does this orange-yellow dye come out of the child's nose. If it does not come out through the nose, we know that that duct is not fully open. So for children, especially during the first six months of life, we often will recommend the use of a warm compress and massaging, and that will then open up that tube. Now, this is very, very common, especially among children with Down syndrome, that this duct gets clogged. And in some cases, it's such that a needle has to be inserted to open it, and once that occurs, the child will not have as many eye infections. But when that duct is closed, the child will have many, many eye infections. And parents wonder, why isn't this going away? Well, it is going away, but it keeps coming back because all of the debris in the tears is not getting washed down the nose. We also have another similar nasal lacrimal duct in the upper eyelid but it's a little bit harder to see. But if you do invert your eyelid, you can actually tell that there is also that other 
uh, nasolacrimal duct. Now, the next thing is if we use our mirror and now we just look directly at our eye. The one thing that we first notice when we're looking at the eye is that we could see the colored part of our eye. Some people have a brown eye, others it's green, others blue, others it's gray, others may have a combination of colors. Now, that tissue that you see that has the colored part of your eye is called the iris. And the iris is a very important muscular tissue. And this is actually a tissue that regulates the amount of light that enters the eye. In the very centered portion, if you're looking at your eye, it'll be a little bit easier if you have light-colored eyes, such as blue eyes. But in the very center of the color of your eye, you'll notice that there's a circular black circle and this circle is actually a hole. And this hole is where the light enters inside the eye. And that black circle is called the pupil. Now the size of the pupil is going to change. In the bright light, the pupil will get much smaller, about 2 millimeters in diameter. And at nighttime, it could get as large as 6 or 7 millimeters. So when we look at children, we often are going to look at the size of the pupils of each eye. The pupils should be round. They should be equal in size. And when you turn on a pen light and you shine it towards the eye, you should be able to see that the pupil gets smaller. And when you turn the pen light off, you should see that the pupil gets larger. If there are any abnormalities where the pupils don't seem to be looking correct, then this could be an indication of a problem with the optic nerve. And the optic nerve is cranial nerve number two. Now, the optic nerve is the nerve that connects the eye to the very back of the brain and is responsible for sending all of that information from the eyes to the brain so that we could then see. If the optic nerves are cut, say that the child or an adult is in an accident and the optic nerve is severed, that person will not see anything because the optic nerve cannot send the information to the brain. But we also see that there's other situations where it is such that the optic nerve has suffered from trauma. Maybe the child has fallen off of a tricycle Maybe a child has fallen off of the bed. Or maybe it's something very mild where the child has conked his or her head while crawling. Trauma can damage the optic nerve, and this can result in the function of the pupils not being normal. Fortunately, in, in some cases where the optic nerve has become inflamed, uh, it's possible for the damage to become restored. So that is something that's very good. So we look at the size of the pupil, and that is, again, going to regulate how much light will enter the eye. At nighttime, the pupils get larger so that we have more light to enter the eye so we could see. And in the very bright sunlight, the pupils will get much smaller so that we could reduce the amount of light entering the eye. Now, when we look at the pupil, the pupil should be black. When you look in your mirror and you look at your own eye, the pupil should be black. If it happens to be discolored, say that it's grayish or white or yellow, this is something that needs to be examined by a doctor very immediately because it's possible that it can be a tumor in the eye called retinoblastoma. It's very, very common that parents will look at their child from different directions. Maybe they're holding their baby above their head, and they notice the pupil looks like it has a little white cotton appearance to it. And when they get this evaluated, it can be what's called a retinoblastoma tumor. Now, it's very important that we do not wait any time at all to send a child in for this evaluation because the retinoblastoma tumor is one that can be cancerous, and it can spread throughout the body. So in some cases, uh, radiation will be used 
to try to reduce and to control this tumor, but there's other cases in which the eye must be removed to prevent the cancer from spreading throughout the body. Another possible reason that the pupil may not be totally black is that some children have a cataract. <clears throat> and a cataract is a lens that is immediately just inside the eye, right behind the pupil, and this lens is normally transparent. But if a person has what is called a cataract, the lens is yellowish or gray and white, and it could blur a person's vision. Now, we're very, very happy because with cataracts now, the success rate of having a cataract removed and using an artificial lens implant or contact lenses or glasses is extremely successful. So we don't see too many children who are really visually impaired due to cataracts any longer. And the third reason that a person may actually have a discolored pupil is that sometimes the lens of the eye just has some very unique opacities on there. These are things that are called snowflake types of cataracts. Now, what's interesting about some of these types of cataracts is that you could see them by looking at the pupil of the child's eye, but they don't necessarily affect vision. So again, any discoloration of the pupil should be a referral to an eye doctor immediately. Now, when we still look with our mirror at our eye, we've already covered the colored part of the eye, the iris. We've covered the pupil. Next, we could see there's the whites of the eye, and the white part of the eye is called the sclera. And the sclera is the very strong tissue that really gives the eye its durability and strength. You know, we might think of the entire eyeball very similar to that as being a tennis ball. You know, a tennis ball is very, very durable. It has a very strong outer coating. And if any of you ever tried to punch a, a nail through a tennis ball, for example, you can tell it's very, very difficult to do. And that's the same thing about the whites of the eye called the sclera. When we inject the eye with a medication, for example, boy, I was really surprised at how difficult it is to get a very sharp needle through the eye. You have to really put a lot of effort so it shows that type of strength. Now, the sclera is also covered with a transparent tissue like cellophane, and that particular type of clear tissue, very thick, clear tissue, is called the conjunctiva. Now, the conjunctiva it is not really something that you can see that is covering the sclera, the white of the eye, because it is transparent. But the conjunctiva is a tissue that often will get infected. And the reason that we have the conjunctiva is that it actually protects the sclera. So if there is a germ or bacteria or virus, it will infect the conjunctiva first. And this is why we often see children who have red eye or pink eye, and these are the kids that need to be referred to the eye doctors. Now, one, one bit of tip that could be helpful for you as teachers and therapists is when you see a child who has redness on the whites of their eye, you're wondering, now, what is this? Number one, is this an infection due to bacteria? Or number two, could it be that this is an infection due to a virus? Or number three, does this child just have allergies and are the eyes just red? So to help you to differentiate some of these things, number one is to determine whether or not it is one eye or both eyes that are red. Very often, when a child has allergies, it's usually going to affect both eyes. So with allergies, we usually find that the redness is on both eyes. Number two, we want to find out if there's any discharge. If you're looking at the child, is the discharge clear or is it green or yellow? 
Or is it something that there is no discharge? If the discharge happens to be green or yellow, that is usually a sign of bacteria. So if a child has a red eye, that might affect just one eye or both eyes. And there's green and yellow discharge, you want to refer them to the doctor immediately so that it doesn't affect all the other children or yourself. Okay, so green and yellow discharge indicates that it may be bacterial and refer that child immediately. If the child has a discharge that is just watery and the child has had a cold recently, this is often going to be a viral kind of condition. Now, with many of these types of viral conjunctivitis, there really aren't medications that we know will take care of this because there's so many different viruses out there. But if the child is very uncomfortable and we have this type of a viral conjunctivitis, the doctors, we will often prescribe them an eye drop that will make their eye feel more comfortable. And then with allergies, we find that the discharge, there probably is no discharge. The eyes don't tear much. Now, the third category, we already talked about looking at whether or not the redness is one eye or two eyes. Number two, we looked at the discharge. The third thing is, do the eyes itch? When a child has allergic conjunctivitis, they are rubbing their eyes because it itches. Or they're blinking their eyes very hard. They'll blink both eyes together simultaneously very hard, and that's try to try to reduce that feeling of itchiness. If you then put ice, water, cold compresses on those children's eyes who complain of the itchiness, and it gets better, and I mean it gets better within a period of 5 to 10 minutes, it usually is allergic conjunctivitis. And these kids will usually benefit from a medication. We have different types of medications that could be very, very helpful. So look at the whites of the eye and remember that there's a clear tissue that covers the whites of the eye, also known as the sclera, and, and that is how a child may have conjunctivitis. Now, the last tissue on the front of the eye is, again, called the cornea. And when you look at yourself in the mirror, you really cannot see the cornea unless you get off at a very large angle. An easier way to see the cornea is if you have a friend and you look and get a side view so that you are standing on the side of your friend and just look at the front of the eye and you could see a clear tissue that is curved forward. And that is the cornea. The cornea is the most important tissue of the eye that is going to focus the light rays from the world into the pupil. So people don't often realize that the cornea is so important to focusing the light into the eye so that we could even see. If a child has a cornea problem, the cornea may be white and clouded, and the cornea may also be distorted in shape. And this often is going to cause severe sensitive sensitivity to the glare and bright light. It's going to cause pain to the eye. And it's going to cause very, very blurred vision. Fortunately, the cornea is one of the tissues that can be transplanted. And with the use of stem cells, the success rate of cornea transplants is better and better and better. So the thing to remember is that any problem with the cornea will cause sensitivity to light, it'll cause pain to the eye, and blurred vision. Examples of eye conditions that may affect the cornea are, number one, different types of corneal dystrophies, and these are conditions that are genetic in nature. Uh, number two, congenital glaucoma. When a child is born with glaucoma, there's too much fluid immediately in between the cornea 
and the iris. There's a cavity between the cornea and the iris called the anterior chamber, and if there's too much fluid in there, it causes the cornea to become clouded. Another condition that causes the cornea to be clouded or white are injuries, different types of trauma to the cornea. And number four, there's other conditions such as Peter's anomaly. Peter's anomaly is a genetic condition that will cause half, if not more, of the cornea to be clouded. And it also is associated with visual processing problems. Okay, so thus far we covered really in depth the very front tissue of the eyes. Now we're going to look at the remainder of the eye. Now I had mentioned that the eye can be thought of as being a very, very tough tissue, and it's very similar to that of a tennis ball. So let's imagine that you have a tennis ball and that you took a very special type of knife and you cut off the front edge of the tennis ball. So let's say, for example, one-third of the tennis ball you cut off. This is going to leave you with a ball with a hollow opening, and if you look inside the tennis ball itself, you'll see that there's a very large cavity of just air. Now, we could think of this whole structure as being the inside of the eyeball. When we're looking at that tennis ball, the outer coating, the fuzzy part of the tennis ball, we're going to call that the sclera. And again, the sclera provides the eye with protection and strength and durability. When we then look inside the hole of the tennis ball, we'll notice that there is a black rubber ball. In other words, the tennis ball actually has a black rubber ball, and that black rubber ball is very elastic. And this particular tissue in the eye is called the choroid. C-H-O-R-O-I-D. So this kind of makes sense because the outside, the sclera of the eyeball is protecting the internal tissues of the eye. And the first tissue that it's protecting is the choroid. Now what the choroid is, it's a tissue that is made up of blood vessels. And this choroid is what supplies the eye with blood and it also removes the old blood from the eye. As a result, the eye is always getting oxygenated blood to keep the tissues healthy. Now, the third layer of the eye is what is called the retina. And we could think of the retina as a very, very specialized tissue similar to wallpaper. So let's imagine that we took a scissors and we cut a circular piece of wallpaper and we now stuffed it inside the tennis ball and we glued it to the inside of the tennis ball very, very smoothly. And that's exactly how the retina is. The retina is attached onto the choroid and the choroid is providing the retina with the blood and nourishment that it needs. So in essence, we could think of the back portion of the eye as having three layers. The outermost layer is the sclera, that's the white protective part. The middle layer is the choroid, which has the blood supply. And the innermost layer is the retina. And we could think of the retina almost like being a piece of wallpaper that is the movie screen at a movie theater. Now, if we look inside the eye, we could see that the retina is divided up into different sections. There is one region right in the very, very center of the retina, and this retina centermost region is called the macula. This is what I call the bullseye. If we think of our wallpaper as being a dartboard, this is the bullseye. And that bullseye target right in the very center of the retina is called the macula. And the macula is made up of cone cells. 
Now, what's so important about the macula and the cone cells is the macula and the cone cells have the ability to see detail. They have the ability to see color, and they see and function best when there's a lot of light. So the macular region, right, that bullseye in the center, we use that to identify a person's face, and we use that when we're reading, and we use that to see in the bright light. Now, if a child has a disease to the macula, such as Stargardt's disease, juvenile macular degeneration, cone dystrophy, these types of eye diseases that affect the macula are going to affect the child's ability to see details, colors, and they're going to have problems seeing in bright light. So as teachers and therapists, we immediately know what to do for them. We could provide them with larger objects to see. We could prescribe different types of glasses that would magnify the print for them. We could prescribe glasses that will have a tint so it's not too bright for them. Now, the region that surrounds the bullseye of our wallpaper, that remaining retina is called the peripheral retina, and that region of the retina is going to allow us to see with our peripheral vision or our side vision. So when we look straight ahead at somebody's face, we could still see their feet and their legs and their body, and we could see the clouds, even though we're staring at that person's face. And the reason for that is that the peripheral retina provides us with that kind of information. Now, the rod cells of the peripheral retina they do not have the ability to see details. The rod cells are better at seeing under night. They see motion. And they're also able to see things of what we call low contrast sensitivity. So as a result, when we're walking, our peripheral vision gives us the ability to see steps and curves. When we're walking at night, and going camping, it's the rod cells that give us the ability to see in that complete darkness. So when there's diseases such as rod degeneration, retinitis pigmentosa, Bartle beetle syndrome, these are diseases that affect the peripheral retina. And if you know that the peripheral retina is damaged, these are the patients that are going to really need the orientation and mobility very, very significantly they may have difficulties seeing in different levels of lighting. They are often night blind. You take them into the auditorium and they just can't see. Okay, so now that we understand what the inside of the eye looks like, the retina contains millions and millions of cells, and these are the rod and the cone cells. And these rod and cone cells each have a fiber, like a little wire. And each of these wires, they leave the retina and they come together to accumulate into one bundle of nerve, and that is the optic nerve. The optic nerve actually consists of nearly one million fibers in there. And that is why one cannot perform an eye transplant. If we were to cut the optic nerve and get a donor eye and try to sew each of those fibers to the appropriate fiber, it would be like trying to connect one million wires to the appropriate other million wires. And it's really not possible to do that. As a result, eye transplants cannot be performed at this time. Now, the optic nerve is, again, a cable, and it's going to move from each eye and the two fibers actually converge and crisscross in the middle portion of the brain, right near the pituitary gland. And at that location, information from the right eye and the left eyes, they become very organized and they mix. After they cross near that pituitary gland, the fibers go all the way to the very, very back of the brain and that region where it connects in the very back of the brain is called the occipital lobe of the brain. So when people ask us, where does vision occur? 
the vision actually occurs in the occipital lobe of the brain. The eyes do not do any type of processing of visual information, but the eyes absorb the light and send signals similar to Morse code. You know, and these signals are sent through the optic nerve and it reaches the very back part of the occipital lobe of the brain where the brain is then processing it. Now, the occipital lobe of the brain is divided into different regions. The very center of the occipital lobe of the brain, you could feel it if you feel the back of your head. If you feel the back of your skull, you'll feel a little bump, and that is the center region of the occipital lobe of the brain. If you were to get shot and the bullet hits you right there, you would lose all of your central vision. You would not be able to identify faces and read and see colors, but you would still have peripheral vision. Now, the left side of your occipital lobe of the brain, that part of the brain, it receives all the information from your peripheral vision on the right side of both eyes. So if you were to have fallen and you damaged the left occipital lobe of your brain, you could not see anything on the right side with either eye. And these students often will have difficulties reading because when they read a word, say the word is thumb, they will see the T, but they don't see the letters that are on the right side of it. So reading is very slow for them. Now, conversely, if we have an injury to the right occipital lobe of the brain, that can cause a person to not see on the left side of both eyes. So these children, when they're reading, when they get to the end of the line, they may have a real difficult time getting to the beginning of the next line because they can't see on that side. So when children do have these types of peripheral vision problems, they often will benefit from performing activities to develop their scanning. Other functions of the occipital lobe of the brain is to take into the processing functions of memory. Can we remember what we have seen before? Can we recognize faces and facial expressions? Can we understand how to assemble a jigsaw puzzle? Can we understand that there is something that is hidden within the background? All of these different types of visual processing functions are skills that develop during the first five years of life very rapidly, and they continue to develop, to develop into the teenage years. So we wonder why is it that some people are smarter in certain subjects than others. Much of it is related to what is their level of visual perception. So many times for children who have reduced visual processing, we have to recommend activities. It's good for them to play with blocks. It's good for them to play with tangrams and parquetry blocks. It's good for kids to sort utensils. It's good for them to play certain types of video games. Now, we also know that there's other regions of the visual centers of the brain that are involved in reading. And we know that on the left side of the brain, there's a structure called the angular gyrus, A-N-G-U-L-A-R, gyrus, G-Y-R-U-S. And this is the region of the brain where when we read, the brain will recognize a word. So if you have learned a word before and you've seen it, such as Braille, and you come across that word again, immediately you could read it and you'll say Braille. Now there's a different region in the left side of the brain called the Wernicke's area. And this is in the left temporal lobe of the brain. If you come across a word that you're not really that familiar with, maybe you have never seen that word before, and you then have to sound it out, the signals will then be sent to Wernicke's area where Wernicke's area will try to sound out that word.
So if a student, a child, has damage to Wernicke's area, these kids may have a form of dyslexia where they cannot sound out words. If a child or an adult has a problem to the angular gyrus, they will not be able to recognize words. And every word that they encounter, they will have to sound it out as though it's the first time they're seeing that word. These are different forms of dyslexia that are, again, indirectly involved with vision. So this is an overview of the anatomy and physiology of vision. And at this time, I'd like to ask you to unmute your phone. If you have any questions or any comments, uh, we could go ahead and take these questions and uh, comments that you have to add at this time. So unmute your phone by pressing star six. Okay, Sue, do you have any questions? No, I'm just, I'm, I'm just, uh, yeah, just a, a, a treasure of information here. Um, I, you know, I'm trying to take notes and stay on the line and <laughs> keep the call going. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I did have just one quick question about um, a condition called foveal hypoplasia. Um, yes. This has come across a couple of times um, in my work with, with families, and oftentimes it seems to mimic um, or seems to uh, the, the initial diagnosis seems to be like albinism or something along those lines, and then it appears to be transformed, and then, be, then there's a, then the, the final diagnosis would be something like foveal hypoplasia. Can you just give just a quick um, just a definition of that because it is kind of comp- it's always kind of kind of eluded me. Yeah, that's a really really good question. So okay. remember we talked about the way that the retina is organized. We could think of it as being like a dartboard, mm-hmm. and in the very center, the little bullseye of the dartboard, that region is called the macula, and the macula contains cone cells. And the macula is like our high-definition television, where it has the ability to see details and colors so bright and vividly. Now, the very, very center region of the macula, the very, very center of the macula is called the fovea. And the fovea is the center region of the macula that has the highest resolution possible. So in the event that the very center of the macula doesn't have the normal cone cells, it is then called foveal hypoplasia. Mm -hmm. And fovea means the very center of the macula. Hypo means underdeveloped growth, plasia. Mm -hmm. So in other words, the fovea does not have the normal number of cone cells. And we see this in different types of conditions, as you mentioned, Sue, in children mm-hmm. who have albinism, mm-hmm. they have foveal hypoplasia. Okay. In some children who have a condition called aniridia, mm-hmm. A-N-I-R-I-D-I-A, where there's no iris, they mm-hmm. may also have foveal hypoplasia. And for those kids, their vision is blurred, they may not see colors normally, They'll be Mm -hmm. sensitive to the light. And for these kids, they do respond very well to low vision glasses. Okay. Magnifiers, video magnifiers, all those things really work out really well. So for all functional purposes, you could think of any time you hear foveal hypoplasia, you could think of that as macular hypoplasia or macular degeneration. Okay, okay. That's how they they function. That's a great question. All right. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. That clarifies a lot of things for me. Yes. Are there anybody else out there who has any other questions? Uh, Dr. Bill, I also wanted to comment that tonight I heard so many different ways of saying what you say about things I know, (laughs) but I learned so much more. And when you give your examples, it's really very useful. Um. You know, I have a large caseload, and I need a lot of students with many different um, syndromes and other eye anomalies. And when you explain it the way you do, it, it, it helps me to explain it to parents and other staff members as well. Oh, mm-hmm. thank you. Well, yeah, yeah I, hope it, I hope it helps. And I know that when I was going through school, it was 
trying to regurgitate all the information that these just brilliant professors said, and they they said it in such a difficult way. I would have to, you know, translate it into well, this is wallpaper and. This is Mr. Potato Head and things like that. <laughs> and it made it easier for me to remember, so I'm glad that it helps. So perhaps at an IEP meeting or just in the classroom, even the teacher, they are telling three more people, and then they tell the parent who wasn't there or the spouse who wasn't there. So they're trying to remember what we said, and when you make it simple, it keeps it simple. You know, when they explain it to the grandparents, you know, two weeks later, well, this is what they said because they really understand, so they can actually repeat. So thank you so much for um, the tennis ball, <laughs> the wallpaper, and things like that. <laughs> oh, yeah. it's my pleasure. And, you know, I also want to thank Ayers LA and Mr. Yes. Dick Burden for recording these. And uh, remember, all of these podcasts, they are available at the Braille Institute website in a library and mm-hmm. also at Ayers LA. So these are things that, if needed to, you could use parts of it at IEP meetings or sharing it with other families. And I also want to make this uh, offer available to all of you. If there's ever situations that a family doesn't quite understand the condition or they don't understand how vision works and they would like to speak to a doctor without being, you know, intimidated at the doctor's office, contact me. Contact me at my email, and that is at Dr. Bill Foundation, D R B I L L Foundation at gmail dot com, and uh, you and I and the family, I, I would be happy to set up a telephone conference, and we could explain these things, and we could even record it, so we could then send a copy of it to the family, and they could refer back to it later. So I, I'm very very open to to doing that. That's an amazing resource. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's it's my pleasure. Okay, let's see. Does anybody else have another question? Okay, great. Well, again, I want to thank Sue Strapasi from Braille Institute for putting this together and Mr. Dick Burden for recording this as always. Uh, This, again, will be up at the Braille Institute website at www.brailleinstitute.org. And, yes. Sue, can you direct them to what link to go to? Yes. Um, actually, on the flyer, we have actually put it on the flyer that went out. But if you were to go to, um, it's actually to Child Services, and click on Child Development, and you'll see, if you scroll down that page, you'll see Telephone Series. And click on there, and you'll see the archive. And hopefully, we're going to be able to get get to navigate it a little bit easier on the website soon. So, um, that's something on our priority list, so we will hopefully be able to get to there quicker. But that's the way to do it right now. Okay, great. And okay. another option is you can go to airsla at www.airsla.org, airsla.org, and you can listen to things there. And uh, other announcements I'd like to make is that this coming Saturday in Sherman Oaks, California, is going to be the kickoff for the 2014 Vision Walk. And they're going to have something really different this year where they're having some of the leading ophthalmologists who are going to be talking about retinal diseases and the latest advances in treatment, vision and nutrition, stem cells, and gene therapy. So we're going to have some uh, very nice lectures there. And uh, thank goodness to Mr. Dick Burden, he's going to be there recording that. (laughs) as well. So you may be able to listen to that also on Airs LA. Uh, We also like to uh, say that on November 1st is the Los Angeles Vision Walk, and if any of you are interested in joining, participating, donating, uh, please let me know, and I'd be happy to help with that. So, Sue, uh, what are we Mm going to be talking about next month? Well, next week, next month, we're going to be talking about eye patching, which seems to be a perennial subject for us all, and practical strategies for success. So, um, I appreciate your your expertise again on this one, Dr. Bill. Okay, yeah, we'll talk about that and include some information about new types of patches that could be used Perfect. 
uh, for okay. the skin and on on the glasses as well as different eye drops. So thank right. you so much again, Sue. Thank you so much, Dr. Bill. It's been a great call. And thank you, Dr. Dick. Thank you, Dick. And uh, again, we appreciate your, your help, too. All right. Have a good evening, everyone. Thanks again for joining us. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you.